What is Bitcoin? It's giving, you know, the individuals these global economic rights. People should be excited about Bitcoin like they were about the Declaration of Independence or about the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Bitcoin is even better than the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. It's the global economic rights and freedoms that doesn't get changed by politicians or fought about in court. Welcome to another episode of the Block Reward Podcast. Today we are diving into one of my favorite pet Bitcoin related topics, which is real estate. And we're going to be comparing Bitcoin and real estate as speculative property type assets for your investment consideration. And the idea of Bitcoin as property is kind of a weird idea for outsiders to Bitcoin because obviously you can't touch Bitcoin, let alone live in it or rent it out. But it does have a number of features which make it uh, akin to property with uh, different pros and cons. And our guest today is Taylor Sugar, who is a realtor from Ontario and a fellow Bitcoiner who has a great handle on these, these sort of arguments for looking at Bitcoin as property. I think that this is a conversation, particularly for Canadian listeners, that you'll hopefully find thought-provoking. Real estate sentiment in Canada is, is really high borderline crazy high and it's because real estate prices have gone up for so long steadily and and so spectacularly that i think generally people in canada have an opinion that you can never lose on real estate and that's in spite of the fact that over that same time period the the costs of owning real estate are going up and there are a number of other sort of regulatory concerns that I think real estate or would-be real estate investors should be thinking about that don't necessarily today apply to Bitcoin. And so we're just gonna kind of go down that rabbit hole of an in-depth comparison of the two. I hope you find the conversation thought-provoking and uh, learn something about another way to view a, a feature or a function of what Bitcoin can provide uh, in terms of being a store of, of value for your wealth. And, um, a, a low maintenance way to uh, hopefully see part of your portfolio appreciate over time. Enjoy. All right. Welcome to another episode of the Block Reward. I have a special guest today, Taylor Sugar, and we are going to talk about one of my favorite pet topics in Bitcoin, real estate. And uh, welcome, Taylor. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Look forward to getting into it with you. Absolutely. Uh, maybe before we get started, uh, can you just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? I am a, a real estate addict, so I, I got into real estate quite young, buying investment properties, getting into real estate sales, starting my own real estate team with my uh, with my mother. We built uh, the Sugar Team. Uh, we've been operating for 17 years, sold a billion dollars of real estate. Uh, we specialize in rural uh, properties, luxury properties, investment properties, but uh, I'm not here as a real estate person today. None of my uh, information is associated with my real estate license. This is more of a conversation just from a humble uh, Bitcoin pleb who uh, loves real estate and also loves Bitcoin. Absolutely. And uh, so we, we appreciate you uh, taking some time to to share your insights. Uh, there is a really really interesting overlap between Bitcoin and real estate, and we're going to talk about um, Bitcoin is property today, uh, sort of among other things. Um, before we get into that, I want to start by asking a question I'm asking everybody now, in your own words or your own conception, what is Bitcoin? Well, I think it's pretty complicated, but I'll, I'll give it a shot. Um, I would say it's a, a decentralized value and energy network that helps uh, elevate individuals above the sovereign monetary network to, to establish global economic rights for the individual 
while at the same time improving the efficiency uh, and reliability of the global energy network. I mean, we could, we could go with Michael Saylor's Bitcoin is hope if that's easier for you, because I like that. I like that too, but if you want the complex. <laughs> yeah, no, that that's really interesting. And just for people who are listening, um, you know, none of this is rehearsed. I, I asked this question now because I love hearing what people, how they answer it. And it's, uh, it's cool as we collect different answers, you can see there are a lot of different ways to conceptualize what this technology means and what it can do. And uh, energy storage is, is definitely one. Um, property rights is another. And uh, so how did, how, did you, how did you come to sort of um, like your journey to understanding Bitcoin in that way? Why would you say that you're... Okay, well, uh, of course, in the beginning, I, I thought Bitcoin was a scam. That's everyone's uh, first impression on day one. Uh, but I had a, a my um, one of my best friends, Drew McMartin, who him and I actually do a blog together called Wealth Playbook. But he said to me, "Hey Taylor, you're stupid. Uh, you don't understand Bitcoin. And I know you're smart. So if you just read these books and you hit this learning curve and you watch these podcasts, you're gonna you're gonna believe it." So I did all the stuff he said, and I was like, "Oh my goodness, uh, this is uh, a big deal." Uh, three years later, so that was like right at the beginning of COVID. But you know, three and a half years later. Uh, I'm pretty dedicated to Bitcoin, so uh, I'm still learning every day, but I really appreciate it. And I think it's been, uh, ironically, like we're all my friends and I are really into real estate. We're real estate investors, we own rental properties, we sell real estate, develop real estate. But all of us who at the beginning, 20 years ago, read Rich Dad, Poor Dad and started getting into the real estate and being Monopoly men have changed our path and we're all heading towards Bitcoin. And I, I think that is a very important note because it, it highlights that that demonetization where all of our extra economic energy is shifting from the real estate towards the bitcoin and i don't think it's a coincidence it's the same people that were getting heavy into real estate 20 years ago are and, and it's not all young people as well i know lots of older investors who are also coming to me and saying hey can you help me with this bitcoin thing you know and so i think that that's going to be a trend that continues and we're going to see a lot of people that love real estate also get into Bitcoin just because they have a lot of similarities and maybe some improvements in Bitcoin as we'll discover today. Yeah, a part of the reason it's such a pet topic of mine is in my own journey of understanding Bitcoin, I decided to sell my house because I am just wired that way. And once something really clicks for me, I, I tend to get uh, I, I can tend to get obsessive about stuff. And in my own opinion, the, the sort of relative cost-benefit analysis of owning Bitcoin instead of property at this particular time in Canada uh, was, was too much for me to ignore. Um, maybe in, before we get into the, the particulars, um, can, you, can you talk about, maybe give us a high-level overview of how Bitcoin compares to real estate as something that you can do with your money? Uh, sure. And... Um... You know, let's let's start with the real estate concept. So you're imagine you're you know you just finished university. You're you want to make some money. You're living with your parents, and you go, okay, how can I get ahead? Well, if you save money every year, it's probably not going to be enough to outpace the printer and outpace the inflation and get you ahead. So you have to go, hey, what kind of uh, bets can I make? And the most common bet is I'm going to buy some real estate. I'll buy a condo or a townhouse or a duplex or whatever it is. And you start to speculate in real estate to try and you know, keep up with the printer. And so that's one way to store and grow your economic energy. Uh, whereas Bitcoin is very similar where you can put your economic energy into Bitcoin and it's also going to help you grow and beat the money printer and, and improve your purchasing power. 
Um, but it's a little bit more scalable. So like you might, you know, to do your first real estate deal, you might have to save up 50,000 and have credit, have all these things. But in Bitcoin, if you go to work for one day and you make $10, you can, you can buy sats with those $10 and you can, you're on your way. And so that's one of the nice things about Bitcoin is that it's scalable and it allows everyone to participate, whether you're buying one sat or a billion sats, doesn't matter, you know, but it's not difficult to get in. You don't have, there's not a lot of transaction costs to get in. There's not a lot of um, bureaucracy or regulations or restrictions. And so uh, it's a beautiful thing. And just let's, it, we're getting that bottom up of the economy rather than the trickle down uh, where everyone can participate. I, m- I mentioned this when, when we first got started and I think a lot of people get surprised this this broad idea of Bitcoin can be different things. And I've had people outrightly tell me it can't be everything. I'm like, I mean, yes and no. It, it can do a lot of things because of what it is and how it works. And one of the things that Bitcoin definitely is, is property. You can't stand on it or cook a, a meal in it. But, but it, it, it is a form of property because of the way the Bitcoin blockchain network works you can prove ownership of the Bitcoin that you have. And um, so maybe give us your 30-second take on, on why Bitcoin is property. Well, and you know, it's, it's better property than real estate, and we're going to talk about this uh, in a little bit for many reasons, but why it's property is you can buy it, and then it's publicly recognized as yours. And actually, you can't change that ownership without your consent, without the private key, whoever controls the key. And so it's actually a lot more secure than other property forms. Like if I own a house and the government says it's mine, sure. But if they decide to take it, they could take it. Or if an invading army wants to take it, they can take it as well. And so it has these centralized points of failure. Whereas the, the Bitcoin has that decentralized feature where it doesn't, you know, doesn't exist, where some critics would say, hey, it's, it's airy fairy, I can't see it. But it's still, it still does exist in cyberspace. And that's actually probably the most important feature is that it doesn't have that physical uh, point of failure in a world where, you know, new wars start every month. And so, you know, like to that point, because it's in cyberspace, it is, um, it's rare and it, it doesn't have to be um, located on Miami Beach to have rareness, which is a really interesting uh, sort of fallout feature of of it not being a, a tangible place in a physical location and you're also escaping these real estate in, in real estate you're within the economic system that's created by the government right you have to follow their rules each country has their own currency the real estate is going to be priced in that currency it's going to generate revenues in that currency and so real estate itself is not a global asset really it's more like a, each each country has its own rules and regulations and restrictions and so it's more of like a national asset um, and there's different versions of it, like the real estate in the U.S. might be better than the Canadian, whatever the argument is. Whereas Bitcoin, I think that's one of the beautiful things about it is it's it's a universal asset where everyone has the same economic rights, regardless of scale, whether you make one sat per day or you make a Bitcoin. For anyone who was listening to the show last week with Dave Bradley, we were talking a little bit about how um, when money stops performing its core functions, Society on its own will start figuring out ways for other things to sort of be money or take on some of the characteristics of money and and perform that role. And this is part of the reason for anybody who hasn't, uh, probably most people haven't read my book, but when I was making sense of Bitcoin as property uh, in Canada, we have seen this uh, spectacular appreciation in real estate prices over the last 20 years. And it's created a 
really broad scale, almost unshakable faith that you can never lose money in real estate. And um, so I, I think that the I, I wanted to have this conversation partly today just to get people exposed to a, a conversation about um, a, as we're heading into a time in Canada where real estate prices have gotten uh, unaffordable for a lot of people and it's something that's causing a lot of uh, stress in people's lives. And Bitcoin's not going to be a silver bullet for that, but hopefully it's, it's, it's maybe the start of just an interesting way to think about things a little bit differently. And it's a big day for the Block Reward podcast. For those who are listening, this is our first multimedia presentation. So if you're tuning in on a uh, on a YouTube, um, Taylor's produced some slides for us. So I don't want to um, I don't want to ruin what you've prepared. So maybe we'll we'll start to go through a little bit what you have now and uh, not risk uh, wasting any of this uh, prep you put in. So so. The, the first question you have to ask yourself and, you know, and I've never asked this, I didn't ask this question of myself until even last year, but the question is, do you own your real estate? Do you really own it? And, and do you control it? And it's a complicated question because, you know, you, you, there are many different participants in real estate and many different parties that have different rights. And if you go to, um, you know, the property law, the first level property law courses in university, they talk about real estate having a bundle of rights rather than just one right where it's like the owner controls all the real estate and has all the economic rights. There's actually like a, a bundle where there's imagining all these sticks that are bundled together and you may control some of the rights and the bank may control some and the tenants may control some or you could sell an assignment, these different things. And so it's not as simple as who controls it. It's, it's a complex system that has a lot of participants and I think it's good to think about that because you want to understand, do you really control your property and where's the best place to store your energy? Um, but I think that's a good visual of this little uh, chart showing different people having participa participation in the, in the process of property rights. Mm -hmm. It's a really interesting time to be sharing this uh, idea because we're recording this on October 19th. And uh, just a few days ago, the BC government effectively banned Airbnb in British Columbia and, and cities with populations more than 10,000. It's something that I have suspected. Uh, I've been saying this to friends that this was going to happen forever. And uh, you know, regardless of how people kind of agree or disagree about it, this is a prime example of do you control your real estate, right? Because now the government has basically told people what they can and cannot do with uh, property that they've purchased. This is a, a really big deal because um, it forces, like Airbnb is a beautiful system in that it allows you to reset the rental rate every day. And if you can reset the rental rate every day, your property has pricing power that can help you keep up with the inflation. So if the inflation is 10% a month, no problem. You can increase your rent, you know, 10% on the first of every month or for every week, doesn't matter. But when the um, government comes in and, and restricts that, it doesn't allow you to do that short-term rental, forcing you into longer terms, they're actually pushing that, that, that maturity onto you and saying, hey, you're stuck with this rent of this period. You can only do one year. You can only do whatever the term is. And that forces the landlord to absorb that inflation if rent control is there. So restricting those short-term rentals is just part of the rent control process, which, which moves capital from or economic energy from the owner of the property to the tenant and so and that's i'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing i'm just saying that's that's the purpose um and i think it really degrades the value 
of the property that's out there. And none of those people that purchased that property agreed to give up their, their short-term pricing power, but it was legislated away. Um, and there's lots of examples in the news as well, like insurance companies getting out of Florida. You know, you, you may be required to have insurance with your mortgage, and what if no one will provide the insurance? So all of a sudden, if uh, insurance companies don't work, which is like a, a real estate counterparty, you may lose the economic value in your real estate. So there's a lot of external things. I think if we go to the next slide, we're going to get lots of examples, just like the um, Airbnb, um, just to give us some, some clip art visuals to help with our conversation. Uh, but on here is just you know, different examples of the, the property owner's rights maybe being infringed upon or diluted. Uh, we start off with the official plan. So you might own property, but you, they don't let you develop it or use it. So it doesn't have its economic value. And you may not get to determine that. And so that's, that's one issue where you don't control it. Or you may want to build that it's in the official plan, but all of a sudden you have all these people that are protesting against you. Even though you have the perfect spot to build the perfect building that's right on the subway line, the NIMBYs come in and, and they restrict your ability to, to recognize that value or to, to monetize that value. And so again, it's another counterparty that they're not on the title, but they may affect your value. Um, you, you've got landlord-tenant board. If you've got a tenant in there, they're enforcing the tenant's rights on you. You could have a power of sale where you didn't, you didn't pay your property taxes and the government selling it or the bank selling it, you didn't pay your mortgage. Or you got divorced and you, you, know, you own the property on title by yourself and then your spouse left. And using spousal rights, they're able to oversee property rights. And so the stack of rights is complex and the government is the ultimate ruler of, I'm not saying spousal rights are wrong. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying these are just all the examples of how complex property rights can be with real estate. The last one, that little chain is, let's say you have uh, someone build you a deck and you have a disagreement and then they put a lien on your property and now you're restricted from selling until you deal with that lien. And so there's lots of different ways to to have challenges with your with your property rights. Yeah, and I th I think again, you know, kind of getting back to that Airbnb, it's such an interesting thing. This idea that um, it, it's really it's government policy that um, changes the moneyness, the the quality of the money that we use, uh, the actual money that we use in in, in a country in Canada, and so it, it's policies that have turned houses into money. And again, it's now house a uh, policy that's going to take some of that aspect and turn houses into less of a less of a of a money. And so, you know, right. And, and you know what? They, they get to choose, right? Uh, who is the winner and who is the loser? And that's that's part of the fundamental problem with real estate property rights is is it's these external counterparties that are going to determine the winners and the loser. Uh, in another slide, it's going to say, "Hey, watch out for crony capitalism." Because that, that may affect your, your property rights. But not these, all these issues are not uh, in Bitcoin. And so this is the crony capitalism. So, and I love Doug Ford. I actually think he's a good politician. But in this case, he may have been a little bit naughty with the green belts. And I, I put on this quote from Jeff Booth that says, you know, a market where the government reaches in and decide who wins or loses is nothing more than crony capitalism. And, and what that is, is, it, it, you know, let's switch, switch to the next size. We'll talk about this green belt. It's an Ontario issue. So you may not be as familiar. But if you go to the next slide, this is a map of the Greenbelt. And um, what we're going to see is the government came in and said, hey, all of the people in this green area are going to have restrictions on how they can use their land. And that reduced the value of the land immediately. And that was sort of out of the blue in 2001. And then all of a sudden, you know, 22 years later, 
they decide to to let some of those people get back their economic rights. And they didn't they didn't give it to everyone. They didn't have a committee. They just sort of had you know, random cash envelopes in Vegas kind of a deal or whatever they did. And they they chose the winners and they gave the economic rights back. But it was such a scandal that they had to now take them away again. So imagine you own, you know, a thousand acres in this land and all of a sudden one day it's worth, you know, a hundred million. The next day they were, it's now worth five million because they've taken away the development rights. And then 20 years later, they give it back to you. It's a hundred million again. But then six months later, the politician that gave it to you is in a scandal and you lose it again. And so like the foundation of those property rights is very um, risky. It's not, it's not concrete. And one of the, one of the things you just said is where they create policies to increase the value. Well, creating that little green zone there, what it did is it put a lot of pressure by creating restrictions between the green and the blue. So on one side, you have the moraine, on the other, you have the lake, and, it, and the pressure on the market increases the value of all the real estate that's south of the moraine, right? And that, so the, when they did that, it really improved the value of all the properties south of that and decreased the value of all the properties in it. And so again, this is picking winners and losers. You know, you have to know what land to buy or where to go or that kind of a thing. And, uh, and it's so complex that it's very hard to have um, quality and have equal rights for every parcel, which I think is like a problem with real estate. Whereas with Bitcoin, it's so clean and pure uh, that it's a lot easier to ensure a fair process for everyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and even um, at a, sort of a national level, this this just reminds me a lot of... Um, in 2020, when when Tiff Macklem, the governor of the Bank of Canada, says to everyone publicly that the rates are going to stay very low for a very long time, and basically, you know, within days or months, we we immediately entered into the fastest uh, vertical rate hike cycling period in history, and um, you know, a lot of people I think have been really stunned as to what's going on with rates over the last little while because. There's this feeling of like, they're not going to do this to us. Like they would never do this to us. Uh, they're not going to let, let housing fail, whatever. And it's just not how it works. Uh, like, and so this Greenbelt example is, is such a perfect example of, of, uh, of why, of, of why it doesn't work that way. Yeah. And it's, it's funny to see all of these examples happening. I, I feel like COVID escalated a lot of these property right issues and we're getting more into it, and especially with the inflation and the Airbnb. All, all the movement of capital. But this next slide, we're trying to look at, you know, and it's complex because it's, it's the real estate slide. How does owning real estate work? And so you first, you buy the property and you get the title. And this yellow box is your, is your land registry, similar to the blockchain in Bitcoin, in that it says, you know, what, who owns each parcel. But the problem with real estate is many people can affect that registry. So it's not like, you, not just the private keys, but you, you may own a townhouse and all of a sudden now you get a mortgage, the lender puts a restriction, you, you, you build that deck and the contractor puts a lien, you get divorced, and your, your spouse puts a lien, uh, you, you know, whatever it is, you, you have a problem at work and then uh, you get sued and they put a lien. Now you've got five liens on your, your registry. And so that's the core issue is that the title is not secure in real estate. It's, it's not uh, protected. And so that's why the little border around it is, is dashed. And there's all these different counterparties in pink that can affect that. And then once, you, once you're on the title, then your economic rights can have issues with these restrictions. And we talked about that a little bit 
whether they're letting you use the Airbnbs, whether they're letting you develop, what what the zoning is, what the environmental restrictions are. And then then you may rent out the property and you have other counterparties where you have tenants that are coming into play that have a lot of power and rent control and the landlord tenant board in Ontario. And so it's a very complex system that it's not clear who has the property control and the property rights all the time. And it's a system that changes over time, which makes it a less valuable money because we can't count on it. Whereas I could buy it and I could have a government that's really pro property rights for 10 years and I intend to pass this on to my children. But on the 11th year, a government comes in that's, you know, not pro property rights and comes and steals a lot of that economic value. And the, the, you, you put in the economic value, you buy the townhouse, but then that value can leak out with property taxes, insurance, uh, development charges, whatever it is. Uh, and so it's not a safe system. Uh, and I think people normally believe real estate is a lot safer than Bitcoin. They think it's a lot less volatile. But I don't think that's true. And I think the market is digesting that. I think that's something that's going to happen over the next decade as we, as we experience the volatility. You, you raise a number of really interesting points talking there. And I think, yeah, one of them, just to echo, is what you just said there again at the end. This idea of like, I think part of the continual appreciation in real estate prices it's like a self-fulfilling cycle where uh, the prices go up and people then become more confident that the prices will go up. And so then this is how the kind of inertia of the asset class of real estate in Canada has probably just, maybe my opinion, it's, it's detached itself a little bit from the reality of the relative safety of that asset class. So it's not to say it's, you know, not like bagging on real estate here, but I, I just think that there's... There's, there's, a, there's a widening gap, and maybe it's narrowing again now, but there's a widening gap in Canada between perception and reality of how good of an asset real estate is. Like, I think it's, we, we live in one. I think it's a cultural thing too. Like, if, if we were in Texas, then the people there are very energy focused. If you're in, you know, uh, LA, maybe you're in the entertainment or you're in the tech or whatever it is. But in Canada, we don't have as much um, economic business that's booming when we, when we do create these great businesses, they tend to be purchased moved elsewhere. And so we don't have those industries that are booming us. Maybe a little oil in Alberta, sure. But uh, you know what I mean. Like you, when, you, when you're born, if you're looking for opportunity, you're a small time in a small Canadian town. What are you going to do to generate value? And, and real estate's sort of been the answer for 20 years. That's why HGTV is on every TV. And everyone stages their house and decorates and renovates and flips and and it's a cultural thing. And believe me, I, I subscribe to the religion. It's a, it's a wonderful religion. But um, Bitcoin is a little bit better. And uh, I think a lot of people are going to find out, find that out. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess what, just what makes it different for me, and I'm, you know, I'm not in the real estate business, so maybe I'm a little bit easier to, freer to share my, my thoughts on it. But I think it, what's, what, what has made this scenario tricky in Canada is because it's, it's just a core, it's like the, 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 the base layer of Maslow's hierarchy of needs like we, we all need shelter and so it sort of evolved from being something that everybody needs and then the next step of uh real estate's ascent uh, in the hierarchy of asset classes in canada was it's become in, in most people's minds a core aspect of retirement planning so a lot of people don't envision a, a, a route or a path to financial freedom without owning their own home in canada and then from there it's like if it's so good you might be better off owning two or owning three. And so all of these things 
it's it's a cycle that uh, that uh, perpetuates perpetuates itself, and uh, and this is how we kind of get to where we've gotten today relative to other places in the world. And and Texas is a great example because uh, you know the average home price in BC is something in the nine hundred thousands. The same the exact same house in Texas would probably be like a third of that. And I'm always amazed. You see these um, videos on TikTok or Instagram and they're tours of a five bedroom house somewhere in Texas with you know marble uh, everything and uh, swimming pool and it's like $350,000. And the same thing in Florida and it's ironic because Florida and Texas have a lot of uh, immigration coming in, a lot of GDP growth. They have the no state income tax. They have the no rent control. So the, the, they have longer uh, debt markets as well. The housing market's more stable. And so the market there is so much better than in Canada. That it, it's amazing to me that Canadian real estate is so much more expensive than that Florida, Texas uh, real estate. And that's what I meant when I said it's like a national product or a, even a state product or a provincial product because each area has its own rules and regulations. Personally, I'd much rather own Florida property than Canadian property. Uh, but I also much rather own Bitcoin property than Florida property, you know, so it depends what you want. Yeah, it's, uh, I, oh. you know, I, th- I think it's like national Stockholm syndrome, to be honest. I mean, because we have these crazy, there's just no way that, uh, that uh, a bungalow in Swift Current should be worth more than a, a house in Tampa. But um, there's a great quote for people who, who are listening on this next slide. And I just want to read it because I, I really want to ask about it. I love Michael Saylor. The quote is, real estate is a currency derivative. Tell me about this. When I, when I first heard him, heard him say that, it hit me like a, a brick in the face, you know? And I also love Michael Saylor. I, I, I would consider myself a sailor bro, if that's a thing. Uh, but, you know, I, I, listening to his podcasts or his videos, his presentations, he blows my mind every time. So, you know, I can't, can't say enough. But when he said this, uh, what, I, what I started to think about is, what does that mean? currency currency driven well it's just so interconnected to the the currency of the local government that it gets this extra risk uh from the stability of the whole system if they're debasing the currency and your property is priced in the currency they're debasing your property if they're debasing the currency and the rent is priced in the currency they're debasing your rent if they're restricting your ability to have pricing power then it makes it even easier for them so he, he says in some of his videos after he says real estate is a currency derivative that if you have rent control as well, it's even worse where it's like, uh, it, you know, there's, there's not a lot of real property left if you add rent control on top because you're removing that pricing power factor. And that, and that Airbnb example that you provided is, is probably one of the best examples of that. You know, if they keep having 15% inflation and you're stuck. Exactly. Um... I, I had a scenario in the summer where I was uh, I was really late at, at really late night at the end of a of a of a fun wedding party and a guy who uh, was chose his moment to uh, pick a Bitcoin fight with me and I explained this exact thing to him currency derivative concept because in Canada I think this is another thing where part of the reason why we have seen this spectacular appreciation in real estate prices is a function of how leaky our our Canadian dollar has been relative, you know, the comparatively the US is a great example. We 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 don't notice it so much day to day because we don't have a hard time ch- exchanging Canadian dollars for US dollars even though the the rate goes up and down and right now it's down. 
and I, so I think because all the currencies, all the fiat currencies float and they all sort of go up and down, but over a long period of time, they're all losing value. So it's not so obvious uh, to one country or another, if we're all sort of living a good standard of life, uh, uh, our quality of living is high, that our money might be doing worse than the US, for example. But we have seen people choosing time and time again to store their wealth in things other than money. And this is part of the reason, again, why house prices are three times here what they are south of the border. And I, I agree with that. And if you switch over to the next one, we can, we can kind of see how, and this is for Ontario. So this is Ontario data. But um, this is a great example of rent control. And, and um, it, this is how, when I said COVID made things a little bit worse, this is uh, another example of that as well. But when we look at this, this the red line on this chart is, is giving us the CPI. And so the CPI is probably a lie about inflation, but let's pretend for this conversation that it's correct. So in this case, the rent control in the blue and the CPI in the red, they kind of dance and, they, and it makes sense if the CPI goes up, the rent control goes up, the CPI goes down, the rent control goes down, trying to create a balance between tenants and landlords saying, hey, rents should go up at the rate of inflation or at least the bullshit uh, CPI rate of inflation. But the problem here is when we went into COVID, if you look at 2020, that CPI went up, but the rent control was suppressed, creating that white space between the red and the blue. And so that white space between the red and the blue is a signal of the debasement from the, you know, of the real estate, moving that economic energy or the pricing power from the landlords to the tenants. And the problem is it's so fake that I've added on in, the, in green on top. That's a, a retail re leasing spread. So that's how much more per you know uh, month or per year they're renting out that retail space and it's more in like the six to 12 range not in the zero to six range or i've also put median rents on there so median rents were growing at 16 percent in 2021 oh my headphones just can you still hear me okay yeah median rents were growing at 20 or 16 or 17 percent in 2021 but landlords only got zero percent increases so that's a huge uh, area of debasement. And so I think that COVID has actually broken the rent control system uh, in Ontario. And this is why a lot of landlords are selling off their units because their rights have been eroded, their pricing power is eroded, the landlord-tenant board doesn't work well. And um, I, that's where we're sort of seeing these property rights become Swiss cheese a little bit. Uh, it wasn't an issue as much in the past, but now it's, it's really becoming clear that if you have rent control, it's quite a dangerous situation. It may restrict you from being able to sell the property. You may not be able to cash flow properly. You may not be able to keep up with Tiff Macklem and his bandit friends. Um, and so uh, I, I, that's one thing that really changed my opinion on whether or not I wanted to own uh, rental properties. And, and now my, my view is uh, a one cave only approach which means you know you should just control and own the cave you live in and maybe not have as much exposure to real estate. Uh, when the government has so much debt, they're going to be coming after that economic energy. Uh, and so I suspect we'll see taxes and different things increase and rent control become a bigger issue over the next decade. I agree. And I think, so this is kind of getting back to my earlier point about the, the 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 widening divergence between the reality of the risk and the perce this perceived risk of participating in real estate and i don't think people often think about how quickly you can become over concentrated in real estate as an asset class if you just even have one additional property in addition to your principal residence 
compared to every other asset, investable asset you might have. So because of the, uh, you can't, you can't fractionally own real estate for the most part. So if you're getting into multiple properties. And you know what I would say to that is first, I tried to solve my real estate uh, problem by, by selling the rental properties and buying REITs, which are fractional ownership in real estate, like real estate through the stock market. And that decentralizes you a little bit and reduces your exposure. Like you might own one unit, have one tenant. So if you have a conflict, that's a big issue where you lose all of your revenue. But if you're in a REIT, now that it risk is spread over thousands of units and you, and you also have liquidity, don't have, there's a lot of benefits to the REITs. But really, Bitcoin is the next level after the REITs where you, you've decentralized from one unit, you've gone to a REIT that maybe gives you a sector or an index or whatever, decentralizes more. But still, you're in that system, that real estate system, and you still have those counterparties and the governments and all those things. When you go to Bitcoin, it just elevates you above those systems and, and gives you a safe place to store that energy. I, you know, I, I, it's great that you are from Ontario. I think people in the rest of the country who are real estate uh, bulls can often sort of detach from the reality of how important what's happening in Ontario is to the rest of the real estate market in Canada. And we're, we're great in Canada for convincing ourselves that there's something about our local market that's different. And I live in Kelowna, BC, and Kelowna, Kelowna people might actually be the worst people in Canada for this because it's, uh, there are some things that make, make property a little bit, you know, geographically, the, the, the physical, physicality of the landscape here does mean that there's sort of a finite amount of buildable land. But, uh, and it's a, it's a nice place. It's a very beautiful place to live. But, and big but, um, we are very, very, very much tied to what's happening in Toronto and Ontario and because it's the center of policy too. Right. So I think that, um, what's cool about Bitcoin, if we're thinking about it as property is this liquidity aspect where, um, if you wanted to even sell a home in Kelowna, you're going to have a certain number of people that will be interested to buy it. And that will probably depend on people who view Kelowna as a desirable, uh, area to, to own in or people who want to live here um you know uh people who are even aware of the area at all and that might be a big number uh in, in terms of the um number of people in the world i don't know uh but it's definitely not everybody in the world so with bitcoin you can sell any amount of bitcoin to anybody anywhere in the world who wants to buy any amount of bitcoin so like there in terms of the liquidity and your potential market of buyers it, it's really not even apples and oranges. We're talking about like an apple and then a grain. And also scalable. You can't sell half a house or a quarter of a house or a tenth of a house, you know? So it doesn't force you to cash in your full investment if you need to take a little off the top to pay your bills that much, you know? It doesn't force you to, to lose that full property or incur those taxes. And one thing that, um, that before I was into Bitcoin, I was, I was into Ray Dalio. That was my, my big macro god. And he never took me right to Bitcoin, but he took, took me right to the door. One thing that he says is we need to diversify our currencies, diversify our geography of our assets so that as we deal with the volatility of, of what's happening, we have less exposure. And one thing that Bitcoin does that I don't think a lot of people realize is that it's, it's liquid in USD. So as a Canadian, when I'm owning Bitcoin, if, if Trudeau is uh, printing too much money or, or causing problems, and he's devaluing that Canadian dollar, my Bitcoin priced in USD is protecting me from that issue. And I think that that's also something, sorry, that's also something that is going to be a big deal going forward, especially when we see oil as strong as it is, Canadian dollar as weak as it is, that 
there may be something more to the story. Um, and uh, I actually feel a lot safer having my Bitcoin liquid in USD and it, because all of my future revenue of my business, of my life is in Canadian dollars. So having some storage in US dollars is a bit hedge. Yeah, uh, it's such a huge point for people to start thinking about. And I this is what sort of led to that near uh, dust up at the wedding in the summer where it's like every every asset that you own or have invested in that's denominated in Canadian dollars is subject to in some way the performance of the Canadian dollar and this is how we can like you could do everything right with your personal investment decisions and still uh have things turn sideways if something goes really wrong with our money and this is not something that is a far-fetched or impossible even a little so this this next slide and if this is talking again about sort of the external risk of, of real estate is that you real estate is tied to the, the bond yield because everyone's financing the real estate with, with bonds and so we look at this chart and this is flying around twitter right now as everyone is uh, scared of the bond yield crisis but the yields are higher than the cap rates now on average and so that's not a good situation and it, when you when you own real estate, even though you have nothing to do with these bonds, or you may not even have a mortgage on your property. You might own your property free and clear, but because of these sovereign bond problems, all of a sudden you end up with a systemic risk where all of these people are forced to sell, and the cost of capital raises, and valuations have to change, and the cap rates have to expand. And so there's there's a lot. That's again like another thing of do you control your real estate? Well. Maybe you don't because the government with, you know, the, through the bond market, you look at that big drop down in COVID and the big move up after. That's a lot of volatility. And I think that, again, is going to the point of people saying, hey, Bitcoin's so volatile. Well, maybe not. Maybe, maybe real estate is a little more volatile. And if anyone catched, uh, caught our, our episode three with Joseph Arbuto, uh, this is sort of what he was talking about, where um, his, his theory and study of, of the rising and falling price and availability of credit is ultimately sort of the determining factor in um, whether or not real estate is going to be good or bad in a particular cycle. It's a really interesting idea. It's not, it's, you don't control that. That's the whole point. It's a complex system. And, and I also would say the government doesn't control it. Like the government might want the bond yields to be here, but no one buys them. So they go here or here or here. And so they're not driving the car fully either. It's like a global uh, event. And I think that we're going to be, we, we've been spoiled uh, riding the rates down for so long that we're not used to a little bit of uh, turbulence in the rate department. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think a lot of people, uh, you know, the, the bond market in general is is fuzzy in terms of how, how people understand it, I think. And interest rates are a core factor because it changes the, the, the market rate of this stuff. But it's still, a, it's an open market and bonds the bond market reflects the confidence of people who are interested in investing in lending. And as that confidence gets shakier, there's fewer people that want to buy the bonds. And, and this, is, this is something that the government has really no control over at all. As sort of and, and I would say that the entire valuation method of real estate is not in the intrinsic control of the property owner. It's in that external system. Luckily, we've made it to the Bitcoin section. Oh. Oof, take a little, a little bit less fear here, a little bit less risk. So this is a little bit simpler of a system. And, and here, you know, whoever controls the key has the property rights. And that's the key concept. You can't adjust, adjust the ledger without the key. And so it doesn't matter if you're divorced or you built a deck or whatever it is. No one is going to be able to put a claim on the title of your Bitcoin. 
And that gives you that core fundamental property rights, which comes back to the question you said, what is Bitcoin? It's giving, you know, the individuals these global economic rights. People should be uh, excited about Bitcoin like they were about the Declaration of Independence or about the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Bitcoin is even better than the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. It's the global economic rights and freedoms that doesn't get changed by politicians or thought about in court. Uh, so I think that's interesting. And on top of that, you have these extra counterparties, but the counterparties in Bitcoin are your friends because they're the nodes and the miners. And these guys are there actually protecting your property rights. They're sort of the front line of defense uh, in Bitcoin. Uh, and so it's a little bit different than the real estate counterparties that are making a claim on your economic energy. These ones actually defend you. Um, and those economic rights, what are they? You have the right to store economic energy, the right to send it, the right to receive it. And you own a percentage of a fixed amount of the network. And that's where the beauty is, is that they can't debase it. And so um, it's a lot better. And there's other features on here I have, like yeah, these are all related to some sales talks, but it's indestructible. There's no maintenance cost. You're not putting on that new roof or buying that air conditioner or you know, fixing the windows or whatever it is, um, it's decentralized and you get that positive correlation to M2. And that is one of the most important defensive features of Bitcoin is as problems happen in the world and they print more money to deal with the problems, Bitcoin is benefiting from the chaos. Whereas in the alternative fiat system, as they print more money, each individual holder is slightly debased each dollar. And so uh, I think that's a, a much better system. And it's also closed energy where it's not leaking. Lots of lots of positive things. And uh, just to add one, I, I think on my own, um, from a speculative standpoint, I think in Canada, again, anybody who's who's living their lives somewhere where the, the, the system of property ownership has been stable and reliable, um, it's easy to maybe not appreciate how much of the world doesn't get to exist in circumstances like this. And for those people, all of these features are a total game changer. So for people in, in, you know, in Africa, the Middle East, or the Central America, where government corruption is way worse and um, money has been much more volatile, the opportunity to start uh, storing, uh, storing wealth as property, uh, be, to be able to protect it digitally, and do it even with tiny amounts, amounts that to us might mean nothing. Um, there are a lot of places in the world where the only property you can hope to uh, accumulate is what you could physically protect. And um, there's a, a very low glass ceiling on what that might mean for individual people. So this technology is going to empower billions of people all over the world to start to be able to accumulate property in a, in a different way that was previously impossible. And I think this is, again, so for people who are just really looking at what real estate means in the traditional sense and the way we've all grown up, there, there is, uh, this is going to unlock new ways of viewing what owning property means and what owning property means as an investment means. And uh, I couldn't agree with you more. And when we, when we compare them side by side, the, the challenges on the real estate side are, again, that the registry is, is not immutable. It can be changed. And by, never mind the government, by many different counterparties, your rights in real estate are not concrete. They can be changed as well. It's a complex system that's moving. Whereas in Bitcoin, it's a lot simpler and it all comes down to who holds the private key and everyone is treated uh, universally. In Bitcoin. And so I think it's a lot better. 
But this economic energy is a great concept where like where you start to leak the energy. So if we if we switch to the next one, you're going to see what we're talking about with that. But when you're putting in your money into real estate, you you're filling up this bucket and there's all these little holes from all these problems and your energy is starting to to drift away. Even if you have the perfect government, slowly with maintenance problems, your value will decrease or a hundred years passes and your building is no longer structurally sound, whatever it is. Over time, it's slowly leaking. But in the Bitcoin system, not only is it not leaking, but over time, it's actually growing. Your purchasing power is growing. And I think that is a key concept. And so, like you said, in some places where property rights are very strong for real estate, the bucket is a lot less leaky and it feels good and it works. But in many places, the buckets are full of holes. And that's why it's so important to have a universal system where all the individuals can you know, put their economic energy into a bucket that doesn't leak and that grows for them and is not subject to all those external risks, counterparties, restrictions, and taxes. Property rights for everyone. This is a great slide. It's going to be impossible to, uh, to describe <laughs> for, uh, for anyone who's just listening, but. Well, and you know, this uh, image has been on a bunch of different Bitcoin blogs and I I just stole it from the Fidelity report that came out. But what it's talking about is that, you know, it's comparing uh, Bitcoin to the internet and saying, hey, the the core level of the internet is TCP IP, which is the protocol layer. And all of the apps on the internet are built on top of that. And that's where all the value is created. Uh, But in, in the internet, nobody owns TCP IP. You can't own it. It's just a decentralized thing that everyone shares. Whereas in Bitcoin, you actually can, and this is where the property rights come in, you can own that base layer of the internet, of the Bitcoin network. And there are things building on top of it. And people say, hey, what's, what's happening in Bitcoin? Well, we go to the chart on the right and you know it shows the 50 companies building on uh, the Lightning Network where you see all this entrepreneurship and innovation. And so all of these different parties are working on creating businesses on top of Bitcoin. And you get to be a founder of Bitcoin and own a, a fixed percentage of the network. Imagine you got to buy the IPO of Google or Facebook or Amazon and they couldn't issue any more shares and they would just keep building and growing forever. That's sort of the idea with Bitcoin. So you can buy a piece and then the entrepreneurship will, will grow on top of the network. Or, or even to say, imagine you were able to buy the IPO of the internet itself. And, and that, that's kind of really what we're... Yeah. One of my, one of my favorite Bitcoin quotes is actually, um, the quote is TCIP, uh, sorry, Bitcoin might be the TCIP of money. And, uh, this is, this is a, mm-hmm. I, I could see that. And it's, and, and, and it's, uh, people think it's like this speculative thing, but there's a lot going on and going into this last, and it might be the last one. I think it is the, um, this is talking about comparing as an asset class, the price to the utility. And obviously people are going to say, hey, real estate, you got a roof over your head. It's going to protect you from the weather. Yes, no doubt there are some good features. But when we're comparing real estate's price to rent in Canada specifically, the price to rent ratio is very high. And so the amount of, of rent that you get relative to the value is disconnected. And so the pricing is disconnected from the economic fundamentals. We don't price real estate based on how much rent does it make for the, for the residential market? We price it based on what did the last person pay? What was the most recent sale? What is the comparable? And that is the disconnect between the economic fundamentals and the asset class. Whereas when we go to Bitcoin, a little bit harder to see because there's no rent in Bitcoin. But if, if we use the hash rate as our economic fundamental, because it's describing 
how much energy, how much infrastructure, how many participants, how much computing power is in the network. We can see that the relationship between the hash rate and the price is a lot more promising in Bitcoin, where the utility is higher than the price. Whereas in real estate, the utility has been disconnected from the price. And so I like that better. It's, not, it's less to do with the property rights, this one, than to, to try and look at the fundamentals of the asset. Uh, but uh, a lot of Bitcoiners, including myself, we love the hash rate. Like, it, what do you do? You check the price in the morning or the hash rate. I, I like the hash rate because it's, it's showing me that it's growing. I started watching it at about 100 and I, we're hitting 500 these days. And uh, that's only in like three and a half years. So it's just amazing to see the growth. Uh, and it, I think there's a lot of hope and promise uh, in Bitcoin. Uh, excited to see how it plays out. Wish I wish I got in earlier. I'm only years, uh, three years in, but uh, I do love it. I think it's uh, probably the most important invention since the internet. Yeah, uh, and and it could very well potentially turn out to be even more important. Um, that might is that that's the last one of your slides, huh? Cool. Yeah, so this, so for anyone who's listening, yeah, hash rate is sort of a universal measurement of the of the uh, of the growth in infrastructure and computing power that is going into the Bitcoin network. And the chart, well, the, the Bitcoin price chart kind of goes up and down. The hash rate uh, chart basically only goes up. And it, regardless of the price, what we can see at any time is there are a lot of people all over the world whose interest and investment in making the Bitcoin network stronger and more robust is literally growing every day. So it, it is a really exciting thing, and it's uh, something that people really, most people aren't aware of at all until they're fairly deep down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, um, which kind of makes me think as well, just to get back to a few of your other points, th this, this idea of um, comparing Bitcoin and property, uh, you know, looking at it as a, as, from an investment standpoint, there are, I would assume, more and more people all the time who understand real estate and have have enjoyed it and viewed it as a desirable thing to own that are going to be attracted to bitcoin over time and um, what this theoretically can also do is sponge away some of that monetary premium that has drifted into real estate and um the the outset idea of things sort of becoming money when money stops working and money has always been this thing that has evolved organically. People on their own make sense of what money is. And if one thing is a superior uh, store of value, does a better job protecting the energy of your money than something else, then it's going to attract more money. And then as it attracts more people who are interested in that idea, it then has the potential to attract even more money. And so there is a lot of people in Bitcoin who feel that Bitcoin potentially has a lot of gravity to suck money away from real estate as uh, more people understand this concept because you don't have to paint your bitcoin and replace the kitchen every 10 years like taylor mentioned so lots to chew on lots of really great ideas and you know what one thing to add on that is that um in my social circle when we sell real estate to buy bitcoin as you did we call it uh bricks for bits and uh I think that's going to catch on a little bit. And the people that I'm seeing selling real estate and buying Bitcoin tend to be the most advanced uh, real estate participants, people that have done the most, that own the most units, have the best strategies, that are the most professional. 
And I think that's not a coincidence. I don't, and I think that we're going to see that be a very big theme over the next 10 years as people start to realize wh- which asset class has a better property rights, which asset class is more volatile, which, where is the best place to store that marginal economic energy that you're generating each day? I look forward to it. Me too. Uh, you know, and I, th- I think it's a net positive, not for people who are overexposed to real estate, but for people who are just trying to enjoy uh, a cost of living that is uh, reasonable. And um, definancializing real estate, in my opinion, is important because it, it, we, we need to return to uh, a way of, of living that people can um, have regular jobs and enjoy a, a cost of living that is sound and have some money left over at the end of the day. And uh, if the price of the, of your primary residence is going forever up at, at a, at a rate we can never catch up with, with how much money we can make. It's just, it's just a, it's an unsolvable problem. So, uh, Taylor, I I really appreciate you coming on. This has been an awesome conversation. If people want to find more of your work, how do they go about doing that? So, um, on Twitter, we've got at Taylor sugar or at playbook wealth. And, uh, we also have a website, wealthplaybook.ca. Um, you know, and I look forward to learning more about real estate and Bitcoin. If any other people have ideas or want to share, you know, it's just a, I think Michael Saylor got the conversation started, but I think this is something that's been a snowball from here. So I always appreciate, uh, you know, participation in conversation. Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on and maybe we'll do this again sometime. Thanks again. Thanks for having me. And I look forward to talking to you next time. Bye, Scott. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Block Reward. We're trying to do something different here, creating accessible conversations meant for people who aren't obsessed with Bitcoin. If you found this episode informative and engaging, hit that subscribe button to make sure you stay updated with future episodes. Your feedback matters. We'd greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to share your reviews and help us with our goal of creating Bitcoin content that is simple and easy to understand. Bitcoin has an important role to play in the future of finance. It will change the way we save, spend, and invest. Discover why Bitcoin offers a game-changing opportunity for forward-thinking employers by visiting blockrewards.ca. BlockRewards' mission is helping Canadian employers implement strategies for integrating Bitcoin into compensation and benefits. Supercharge your recruitment and retention strategies and help your team members plan for the rising cost of living by rewarding their work with the hardest money ever invented. Special thanks to our top sponsor, Paramount Employee Benefits Consulting, Canada's only Bitcoin-forward benefits and pension advisory. For more information, find them at paramountbenefits.ca. Big shout out to Podigy, our production team that makes all this possible, and BMX Escape for producing our music. Bitcoin is an expansive and dense topic many people walk away from early. To Bitcoin enthusiasts looking for that podcast they can share with friends, family, and colleagues, one they'll actually listen to, we hope that is us. The content of these conversations is meant to be provided for information purposes only. Nothing here is investment advice. Bitcoin is a big topic. Be sure to do your own research before making any personal financial decisions. Thanks for listening. 